the U.S. labor market moderated in July with job growth a bit slow, but unemployment near a record low. It's Friday, August 4th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, what the job growth numbers say about the U.S. economy. Also this hour, reaction to this week's federal indictment of former President Trump from some of his Republican rivals in the presidential race. And two Tennessee lawmakers expelled after participating in a gun control demonstration have won re-election. We'll look at how that affects the gun control debate. Plus, Treasury officials say they've seen little fallout from the government's credit rating going down, and more communities look to convert vacant offices into housing. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A day after being arraigned on charges he conspired to overturn the results of the 2020 election, former President Donald Trump is appearing tonight at a Republican dinner in Alabama. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports Trump will be joined in Montgomery by a loyal supporter from the U.S. Senate. If Trump is looking for a warm welcome following his latest court appearance, Alabama is a good choice. The Republican-dominated state voted overwhelmingly for Trump in the past two elections and so far has given him the largest share of donations of any candidate in the 2024 presidential race. Senator Tommy Tuberville will introduce Trump to a crowd in Montgomery. Some Trump supporters have paid $50,000 for a table. Alabama's senior senator is holding up military appointments over the Pentagon's abortion policy. Trump has called Tuberville an incredible coach and senator, and in turn, Tuberville has called the former president's indictments a witch hunt. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. China says it is sending a top official to Saudi Arabia this weekend for talks on Ukraine's peace proposals. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. Saudi Arabia is hosting senior officials from about 40 countries to hear how Ukraine wants this war to end. China says it's sending its special envoy for Eurasian affairs and in a statement says it's ready to play a constructive role in seeking a political settlement of the Ukraine crisis. Russia was not invited to the meeting in Jeddah, but says Moscow will be watching closely. The U.S. sees this meeting Saturday and Sunday as a chance for Ukraine to spell out its proposals on how to end the war and how to hold Russia to account for its aggression. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Another victim is being linked to the decade-long investigation into murders on a Long Island beach in New York. During a news conference today, Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Tierney identified the Jane Doe whose remains were found in 1996 and again in 2011 near Gilgo Beach. We are here to announce that as part of the Gilgo Task Force re-examination of all the evidence in the case, we were able to identify Fire Island Jane Doe as Karen Vergata, who was 34 years old at the time of her disappearance. Today, experts reenacted the 2018 Parkland, Florida mass shooting as part of a lawsuit. Victims' families accuse a former law enforcement official of doing little to protect the students and staff inside. 17 lives were lost. 17 people were injured. Letnioff, a law professor at the University of Michigan, describes the powerful impact a reenactment can have on a jury. A reenactment like this is dramatic. It's memorable. Um, If the jurors remember no other piece of evidence, they'll remember this one. And the jurors could place more value on it than it deserves. The site of the massacre is slated to be demolished. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. The National Weather Service has a severe thunderstorm watch posted for most of the state and still until 8 p.m. Weather Service meteorologist Bill Leatham says the storms could be strong. The main risk with the thunderstorms as they're coming in here are damaging wind gusts and winds uh, greater than 58 miles an hour. And also, it's not out of the question that there could be some, some large hail as well. But it, it looks like at this point that the risk could be greatest out in like western Massachusetts. The Cape, Islands, and South Coast are not under the thunderstorm watch. Thousands of cyclists are preparing for this weekend's Pan Mass Challenge. The annual fundraiser hauled in a record $69 million last year for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. This year, event founder Billy Starr says they hope to raise $70 million. It demonstrates what people can do together, something you could never do by yourself. It's palpable moving 7,000 riders across the state on 16 routes through 47 towns. About 6,500 riders are expected to hit the road starting tomorrow morning for either a one-day or two-day ride. The shortest route is 25 miles. The longest is 211 miles. Beverly Middle School is undergoing some extensive repairs after recent flooding caused by a leaky water faucet. Eighteen classrooms on four floors were damaged, five of them extensively. The school department says the building should be able to open in time for the start of the new school year on August 28th. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is currently acting mayor of the city. He's temporarily in charge because Mayor Michelle Wu is on vacation with her family. She left Wednesday and is expected to return August 12th. In sports, Red Sox open a weekend series against the Blue Jays at Fenway on the Cape. The playoffs start tonight for the Cape Cod Baseball League. In our forecast, showers and thunderstorms tonight. That's severe thunderstorm watch posted for much of the state. Lows in the 60s tonight, sunny tomorrow and Sunday. Temperatures both weekend days in the 80s. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In the case of former President Trump, two things can be true at once. He can be formally charged with crimes related to his attempt to overturn the 2020 election, as he was this week. And he can remain the clear frontrunner for the Republican nomination in the 2024 election. So far, Trump has been able to turn most of the press into very good press, at least among his supporters. This week, he boasted online in all caps, I need one more indictment to ensure my election. So what does this mean for the Republican candidates running against Trump? Well, Republican political strategist Sarah Longwell is here to tell us. She is the founder of Republican Accountability, a group that opposes Donald Trump. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so on the whole, can you just tell us how other Republican presidential candidates have been responding to this third indictment? What's striking you so far? Well, there's sort of tiers of candidates and how they respond. So Trump's biggest rivals, somebody like Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis actually rushes to Trump's defense. Uh, He uses very incendiary language. He talks about uh, the weaponized justice system, the idea that they uh, should be, you know, slitting throats at the deep state. Uh, And I think a lot of the the candidates uh, feel like they need to 
defend Trump because people like DeSantis are trying to win over his base. Now, there's another category of candidates like Mm -hmm. uh, Mike Pence um, or Asa Hutchinson or Will Hurd or Chris Christie um, that tend to be much more critical of Donald Trump. I mean, Mike Pence was sort of the most interesting of the responses because he said anybody who puts himself, he didn't name Trump, but he said anybody who puts himself above the Constitution is unfit to be president, which was a pretty strong statement uh, from Pence. But the the biggest thing uh, is how little most of Trump's serious challengers, uh, let's say somebody, really the only people within even spitting distance are Ron DeSantis and, and and then more distantly, Tim Scott. And both of them have been very quick to defend him. And they often pivot to, to kind of a what about, you know, what about Hunter Biden? Uh, and they talk about a two-tier justice system. And I do focus groups with two-time Trump voters almost every week. And that voice is reflected back by the voters. When I ask them, you know, what they think about these indictments, uh, they, you know, they they think it is about people trying to get Trump because he's the most dangerous candidate. Let me jump in because I would like to look at those tiers a little more closely. For those candidates who are noticeably defending Trump, or at least the ones who are repeating this argument that the system is rigged, how are these competitors threading the needle here, like defending Trump while also trying to beat him in the Republican primary? Well, the answer is they're doing it poorly. And I think this is <laughs> okay. why nobody has really been able to break through. You know, I think Ron DeSantis, uh, particularly by trying to take this very aggressive tone, by taking almost a Trump-like uh, tone uh, in in the way that he defends Trump, he he doesn't seem to realize uh, that he is not going to beat Trump by uh, defending him or trying to sort of out-Trump Trump. Um, and it's been a problem for him his entire campaign is that he has never figured out a way to actually go on offense against Trump because mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis, for some reason, made the strategic decision to try to, to wrestle Trump for his base yeah. as opposed to consolidating the chunk of the party that really wants to move on from Trump. Well, let's talk about former Vice President Pence, which you mentioned, you know, he had that statement that you cited, you know, this serves, this indictment serves an, as an important reminder. Anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. Also, in this indictment this week, uh, the allegations were that Trump berated Pence in January 2021, saying, you're too honest, which I understand Pence is trying to sell some too honest merch now, right? How's that going? I don't know what his sales look like, but I will tell you (laughs) that I've been hearing from voters just for months and months in the focus groups. Uh, and and there is no interest in a Mike Pence presidency. He's really in the sour spot with voters where the people who want to move on from Trump feel like he's too closely tied to Trump. And then all of the people who really like Trump think Mike Pence is a traitor. And they actually talk about Mike Pence in some of the mm-hmm. most uh, incendiary language. Um, and uh, And the best most people say about him is that he's boring. And I but, think that there's a reason that he's polling so low when he has 100 percent name idea as a former vice president. But in the last minute that we, we have left, what about Pence's message that he is on higher moral ground than Trump? Because he's not the only candidate saying that. Chris Christie, Will Hurd, Asa Hutchinson, they're saying similar messages. How is that panning out for those candidates? Look, I wish as somebody who agrees with their message vehemently, um, the fact is that Every poll where voters are asked, uh, 
Do you want to see candidates criticize President Trump or do you want to see them defend President Trump? The voters always say what they want to see uh, from any presidential candidate is somebody who vociferously defends Donald Trump. Hmm. And what about independents or members of the party who are a little bit disillusioned? Are they more persuadable on this higher moral ground message? They really are. And this is where there is a big difference between uh, the indictments and how they impact primary voters on the Republican side, uh, where it makes Trump more popular. But for swing voters, especially the January 6th indictment and the issue of January 6th, that's one of those things that really does start pulling off those uh, swing voters. That is Republican strategist Sarah Longwell. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. When a huge suicide bombing killed dozens of people in Pakistan last weekend, a terrorist group that seemed to have been defeated said it was responsible for the attack, the Islamic State, also known as IS or ISIS. That got us wondering, how serious a threat is the Islamic State today? We're going to put that question to Mina Alami. She's a specialist in jihadist media with BBC Monitoring. Mina, welcome to the program. Hi. Mina, as recently as a few years ago, the Islamic State controlled a lot of territory in Iraq and Syria. It was considered defeated in 2019, but that doesn't mean it's disappeared. In what form does the Islamic State exist today? Absolutely. I mean, IS attacks and activity around the world have significantly dropped. It is definitely a shadow of its former self. But the group has never gone away. And even though it doesn't make headlines... We know that IS is still active in the Middle East, in Africa, in Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Um, The attacks that it carries out don't, again, always make headlines because they are limited. But it is always there. The militants, its fighters, are always there carrying out small attacks, trying to infiltrate certain communities. And, you know, the numbers are down and some of its leaders are dead, but the group is still a threat. You mentioned that there's a presence in various countries, countries in Africa, Afghanistan, Pakistan. How strong is the communication and coordination among the different Islamic State groups around the world? Well, IS claims to be a global caliphate, you know, despite losing its territories and everything. But it likes to project this idea that it has these global branches far flung in various parts of the world, um, in, in Nigeria, in DR Congo, in Mozambique, in the Sahel, as well as in Afghanistan and all these countries. It usually um, concentrates its activity on in, in rural areas where it knows that there's perhaps weaker government authority in some of these countries. Um, and it's not like, of course, IS just went there, took the banner and set up a new group in, in, in Nigeria or in DRC. What it has been doing is simply co-opting existing Islamist insurgencies and then getting them to rebrand as IS or ISIS. And it's a win-win for both groups. On the one hand, these local insurgencies get to have that reputation of being part of IS or a global caliphate. And with For IS, even if this group is small, it gives them that ability to say, we have a global caliphate that extends from east to west, north to south. So it's been this partnership where both groups are benefiting. Just this week, IS announced a new leader after its former leader was killed by rival militants in Syria. What does that indicate to you, if anything? Indeed, I mean, this was the big story um, yesterday, and there had been rumors already that the IS leader was killed. The group clearly has been hiding it. We've had this kind of churning of IS leaders. And the other thing is, of course, you know, since its founding so-called Caliph Baghdadi, IS has not been revealing the true identity of these leaders. So it's it's now even a bit of a mockery within jihadist circles, really, because the group simply announces 
the alias of a leader. Some are even saying, well, do they even exist? Is it just a name? It is really a big blow to the morale of its followers, who it seems every few months have to come out and pledge allegiance to a new utterly anonymous leader. Mm. It seems even their followers don't know who this person or who their leaders are. So it does impact the credibility of the group, at least in the eyes of their supporters. Mm. So there is obviously a continuing threat of Islamic State. How adequately do you think governments and countries worldwide are treating that threat? I think the the danger is sometimes, I mean, the assumption is that, okay, so IS has lost its bases in Iraq and Syria, lost its so-called caliphate. That threat is, if not completely, you know, over, then it has been diminished to to a large extent. And I think that the danger in that is that these jihadist groups take advantage of what they see as, you know, the West's preoccupation with other matters. There are, you know, lots of concerns around the world. There's, you know, Russia, China, Iran, Ukraine. So while the West is looking away, jihadists are really rubbing their hands and looking at this as an opportunity. They, they see a distracted world as an opportunity. Exactly. And they look at, for example, the French withdrawal from Mali, and they see that as an opportunity as well. Of course, they, they take advantage of the, um, the Russian Wagner personnel being there and all the negative reports in the media. And they say to to Muslims there, see, we are here to protect you against these mercenaries. So, of course, they're really trying to build up their strength in the Sahel and other countries where the West is seen as, you know, withdrawing. That's Mina Alami. She's a specialist in jihadist media with BBC Monitoring. Thanks, Mina. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Thanks for listening this afternoon. Coming up, how the extreme weather is affecting American summer plans. It's 18 minutes past four. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow dropped 150 points to close at 35,065. The S&P 500 was down 23 points, and the Nasdaq was down 50 points. In local business news, outdoor retailer L.L. Bean plans to open two new stores in Massachusetts. One will be located at the, on the south shore at Hanover Crossing. It's expected to open in September. The other store is scheduled to open in October at the North Shore Mall in Peabody. Marketplace will have all the day's business news beginning at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive in all of their stores, distribution centers, and offices. OceanStateJobLot.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Showers and thunderstorms tonight. A severe thunderstorm watch is posted until 8 p.m. Temperatures in the 60s tonight. Sunny tomorrow, though. Highs in the 80s. It is 78 degrees in Boston. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Summer usually comes with the promise of fun, whether it's cookouts in our backyard or long-awaited vacations. But this summer has had a hard time delivering. This weekend, we're expecting a heat wave in the South again and thunderstorms in most of the country again. NPR's Lisa Lambert reports that despite all that, Americans are determined to hold summer to its promise. It's summertime. Isn't the living supposed to be easy? Yeah, it hasn't been that easy. That's Taylor Evans, who works in entertainment marketing in New York. Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) It's been very muggy, very warm. Yeah, just almost like swampy a little bit. And thunderstorms in those days when the city was blanketed with wildfire smoke. Well, even then, Evans has found ways to keep having fun. I went to a concert in Brooklyn. Both indoors and out. There was an um, anniversary party for the musical Wicked like two weeks ago. In a very New York way. The Met does like a rooftop sort of like makeshift bar in the summertime. No, Americans will not lock down again. We're constantly consulting weather apps and chugging the it drink of summer, water, or electrolytes if you're feeling fancy or really, really hot. And we're having fun. In the last week of July, which was hit by both excessive heat and thunderstorms, Major League Baseball recorded the best attendance at games in more than a decade. Live Nation, the big concert promoter, just posted record profits. And then there's travel. John Hunt has been zooming around the country with his wife and two kids. Our four-year-old for some reason, keeps a rock every time we go somewhere. And I think we have like nine or ten rocks sitting on a table. Rocks from Missouri, California, Washington State, Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, the Rockies. And every time I look at it, I'm like, man, that was a a lot of packing a car, making sure you have everything, checking the weather, going and doing it. It's been tough at times. 60-mile-per-hour winds shook their tent in Wyoming. His wife had heat stroke at the gorge in Washington. One flight was delayed for six hours. But Hunt hasn't canceled any plans and doesn't intend to. My family is kind of on like a rock band tour from the end of May until the middle of August. One reason? He invested a lot into planning the summer. He started in November to make sure he could lock in campsite reservations. Also, most of the time, summer's been fun. Like at Priest Lake in Idaho, near the Canadian border. The weather's great. I think the hottest it got was maybe like 90 degrees. We had one day where there was a little sprinkle of a shower, but, you know, sitting on a beach at a lake in northern Idaho is is pretty lovely. And yes, there's a possibility of more extreme weather next summer, but he's still going to kick off another round of planning in three months. And I guess the, the best thing I learned from my grandfather is if you don't bring a raincoat, it's going to rain. If you bring a raincoat, there's a chance that it won't rain. So you just kind of prepare for whatever the worst could be. And hopefully it doesn't hit you or it misses you by a couple miles or you're in it. And, then you know, that's a whole different experience. And hopefully you have your weather apps and your electrolytes with you, too. Lisa Lambert, NPR News.
There is a force moving global economies right now. It's bringing millions to cities and local businesses. The force I am talking about is... It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. That's right. It's her, Taylor Swift. It's estimated her Eras Tour will generate $5 billion in global revenue. But for countries like Argentina that are really struggling with inflation... Taylor Swift has become a bit of an anti-hero, as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. Leonardo Abdel-Nur lives in Buenos Aires with his wife and kids. And his twin daughters love Taylor Swift. Are they, like, singing Taylor Swift songs around the house? Yes, yes, they turn on this Spotify list almost every day. They've been kind of praying that she comes to Argentina at some point. Their prayers were answered. Taylor Swift is coming to Argentina in November. And the second that news broke, Abdel Noor's daughters were begging him for tickets. But there was an issue. The price. Argentina is dealing with some of the highest inflation on the planet right now. Prices are rising at a rate of more than 114% a year. That means a coffee that cost $4 last year will cost more than $8.50 this year. And next year? It will cost $18. And Taylor Swift tickets cost a lot more than coffee. 45,000 pesos each, excluding, you know, these fees that they charge. So in total, it's been like 50,000 pesos. That is about $180, which is a lot in Argentina. The average income for a household is about $4,500 a year. Using that same metric, that would mean one Taylor Swift ticket here in the U.S. would cost almost $3,000. Abdel Noor has a good job in IT, and his wife also works. They're lucky, but they're not super wealthy, and the tickets were going to have a big impact on the family budget. We had to have this talk with my girls, right, with my daughter, say, I really want to go to this because this is really expensive, right? Abdel Noor and his wife talked it through. But it was not the same conversation parents in the U.S. were having because hyperinflation changes economic incentives. It turns everything on its head. Like if you have extra money in Argentina, the smart thing to do is spend it as fast as you can. It buys less every day. So saving is kind of for suckers. The goal will be to spend all that we have because otherwise you are losing money because next month, you know, the value of that is much less. But then at the same time, you need to still say because you'll never know, right, what happens. So it's kind of a game here, right? What to do with your pesos. A game. What to do with your pesos. Spend them all and you get the most out of your money. But then you have no cushion in a really unstable economy. Save your pesos and your savings loses half its value every year. Right now in Argentina, expensive restaurants are booked solid. People bring backpacks full of cash to pay for a nice dinner while they still can. Shows, movies, concerts sell out. Abdel Noor and his wife talked it over. They did have this chunk of savings that they'd been planning to use for home improvements. We were saying, oh, we want to paint the house. What if we purchase the tickets and we are postponing? the painting. Of course, it was risky. In six months, the cost of painting the house could be much higher. They didn't know. What they did know, Taylor Swift was coming to town and they could bring a lot of joy into their daughter's lives, help them shake off this tough economic moment for one night. Finally, they came to a decision, got everyone together to discuss. 
we gather together at dinner and then we say, okay, we can purchase the ticket. His daughters were very excited. They were yelling. They were, they hugged me. They gave me a kiss. <laughs> Abdul Noor and his wife had a long conversation with their daughters about how they'd made this decision, the things they would hold off on doing in order to afford the tickets. So they also understand our other priorities for the family. We are doing this. We are not doing that. But we, we all were happy anyway, right? I mean, they are happy. We are happy as well. Abdul Noor is trying to teach his kids how to make responsible financial decisions in the middle of a lot of instability and uncertainty. He grew up in Argentina, and hyperinflation has happened before. He knows it. Stacey Mannix-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us this afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we have a story about an increasing number of communities looking to convert vacant offices into residential buildings to try to ease housing shortages. In our weather forecast, showers and thunderstorms tonight. A severe thunderstorm watch is posted for much of the state until 8 p.m. Temperatures will go down into the 60s tonight. Tomorrow, it should be mostly sunny. Highs in the 80s. Sunshine on Sunday and Monday as well with temperatures in the 80s. And it, at this point, it looks like summer weather for much of next week with some scattered showers in the forecast for Tuesday and Friday. It is 77 degrees in Boston at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Josh Gondelman did not approve of Twitter's new name. I think it's false advertising. Calling it X implies that there's going to be skateboarding there. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. I'm going to be straight with you. Our news quiz this week will include lots of jokes, some actual news items, a few fake ones, and poet Maggie Smith. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Washington, D.C., Vice President Kamala Harris spoke to local businesses today about the Biden administration's work to invest in minority-owned businesses and entrepreneurs, announcing the winners of a grant competition that will distribute $125 million to certain underserved small businesses to help them grow. Harris also used the visit to highlight some of the administration's economic successes. Today, the unemployment rate is near its lowest level in over half a century. Wages are up, inflation has fallen 12 months in a row, and recently, some of the nation's largest financial institutions have begun to recognize the significant impact of our economic approach. The grant program will go to 43 different groups, a mix of nonprofits, private organizations, and schools across the country. For the first time since the start of the pandemic, states are reassessing residents' eligibility for Medicaid. From Montana Public Radio, Aaron Bolton says conservative states are seeing a lot more people losing their coverage and unable to get help. 
According to a new report from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Montanans are waiting nearly 40 minutes on average on the state's Medicaid helpline. Many have questions about filling out paperwork to make sure they don't lose coverage. Jackie Simmons with the Montana Budget and Policy Center says some are waiting longer. They're actually hour-long, three-hour-long, eight-hour-long wait times happening as well. Nearly 35,000 Montanans lost coverage in May and June, according to state data. Roughly two-thirds lost coverage because they didn't file paperwork or answer questions properly. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. South Korea is rushing to supply air-conditioned buses and medical care to the World Scout Jamboree after hundreds of participants suffered heat-related illnesses. As NPR's Sewoon Gong reports from Seoul, the country is experiencing one of the hottest summers ever. South Korea is hosting over 43,000 scouts for almost two weeks of outdoor camping. But the campsite in the country's southwest was not prepared for unusually high temperature and humidity. Participants complained about lack of shade and basic supplies like drinking water. Since the event started Tuesday, hundreds are visiting clinics every day for heat exhaustion and dehydration. The government on Friday approved an emergency fund worth over $5 million and started supplying resources. Since the rainy season ended in late July, South Korea has been under heat wave warnings with daily high reaching 100 degrees in some regions. Seung Gong, NPR News, Seoul. Fewer people got jobs in July than expected. Despite a solid pace of hiring, the Labor Department says employers added 187,000 jobs last month as the unemployment rate fell to the lowest level in almost 50 years. A sign the job market remains resilient. Healthcare, hospitality, and construction were among the industries adding jobs, while factories cut about 2,000 jobs in July. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Brigham and Women's Hospital says it may have exposed the personal information of almost 1,000 people who are taking part in a research study. The hospital says names, dates of birth, contact information were inadvertently made available online. Brigham and Women says social security numbers, credit card, bank account numbers, or other health insurance information were all exposed back in June. The hospital says it is reaching out to those affected and taking steps to further protect patients' personal information. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling on the U.S. Treasury to crack down on illicit cryptocurrency activity by North Korea. She cites research showing that North Korean-backed hackers stole about half of the nearly $4 billion that was taken worldwide last year. Warren says the totalitarian country launders crypto to try to evade international sanctions and use the money to fund its nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs. Well, there was a rousing send-off for Canton's Little League team this morning. Police escorted the state champions out of town as they headed to Bristol, Connecticut for the regional tournament. Their first game is against Vermont tomorrow. Teams from New Hampshire and Maine are also competing. The winner of the regional bracket moves on to the national tournament. In other sports, Red Sox open a weekend series against the Blue Jays at Fenway tonight. And our forecast says showers tonight. Severe thunderstorm watches posted for much of the state. Lows in the 60s tonight. Sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater. 
committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Two lawmakers who were expelled from the Tennessee State House in April for breaking decorum rules have been reelected. Democrats Justin J. Pearson and Justin Jones were temporarily removed from the legislature this spring after leading a pro-gun control demonstration on the House floor. Both lawmakers won back their districts last night in landslide special election victories. WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey has been covering all of this and joins us now. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Good. So what's been the reaction so far to these election results? Well, to be honest, both were in heavily Democrat Democratic districts, so it was sort of expected that they'd <laughs> win. Uh, and I don't really think anybody was too uh, shocked by the massive landslide victory that both had. Uh, both lawmakers had gained a lot of attention nationwide and in their districts for how unprecedented their and uh, we should note that the expulsion was also very short-lived. Both were able to come back in less than a week later. Right. And a lot of people felt that the expulsion was too harsh of a punishment for them breaking a rule of decorum. Uh, many also called it racist since the move was made by essentially an all-white Republican supermajority. Uh, Memphis Justin J. Pearson said that this movement isn't going anywhere, and that came true. Um, Pearson was on Here and Now earlier today, and here's what he has to say. You can't expel a movement. Our demands that we do something about gun safety and gun violence, those issues are front and center in this state, uh, and this election victory proves that. In Nashville, Representative Justin Jones said the victory sends a message that they're going to stand up and fight back. Well, we just heard Representative Pearson talk about gun safety and gun violence. Where does the debate on gun control stand now in Tennessee? Well, Governor Bill Lee actually um, informally called a special session that's set to begin in about two weeks. Uh, he's hoping that lawmakers will use that time to pass an emergency risk protection order. But Republicans so far have batted down the idea and shifted the focus to mental health. And some have instead focused on separating individuals who are a threat to society from the community instead of removing their guns. Now, not a lot of people are sure exactly how they intend to do that or what that means, mm -hmm. but we do expect um, not much to come out of special sessions since they've been so uh, adamant on their stance against any sort of emergency risk protection order or red flag law. Um, and so basically we expect a lot of talk, but probably not a lot of action. Well, what about Pearson and Jones? Do you think that they will be able to make a difference on this debate over gun control? I think so. You know, I think if if anything, they'll probably just be able to give it more attention nationwide uh, because of their notoriety at this point. Um, you know, these two young men have really been pounding the table ever since they've gotten into the General Assembly. And with their expulsions being broadcasted nationwide, they gained a lot of attention for themselves and the gun control issues in the state. Um, as for if it'll make a difference, I would imagine that this could send a sign to the GOP that this issue in the two lawmakers won't be dismissed quietly. 
and they have more topics they want to focus on from poverty, economic justice, and lifting up the LGBTQ mm-hmm. community. That is WPLN political reporter Blaze Ganey. Thank you so much, Blaze. Thank you. If you've been trying to tune out the news lately, you're far from alone. A growing number of people are intentionally limiting their news consumption. They're avoiding it for many reasons. Some say it makes them feel angry and depressed. Others want a break from the never-ending flow of information. Some are more interested in celebrity updates on social media than old-fashioned newspaper or radio or TV news coverage. Those are some of the findings of recent research by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And with us is NPR's media correspondent, David Falkenflick, to talk about what, for us, you and me, David, is pretty discouraging news for reporters like us. But thanks for talking about it. Pleasure. Give us a sense of how widespread news avoidance is, what percentage of people are tuning out. Well, this this Reuters Institute survey is global, but let's look at the U.S. Uh, more than one in 10 Americans who responded to this reported tuning out altogether and even more say they sometimes or often avoid news, uh, say 41 percent of women, 34 percent of men. And the proportion of like extreme interest has gone down in recent years. And the trends are similar across countries. And the trends are also similar that the interest in news tends to be lower among women and younger folks. This does mirror what I hear from family and friends. They say news used to be a daily habit. They feel like they want to stay current. They also feel very discouraged when they read it. And they feel like maybe the world isn't worse than it ever used to be. But it sure feels that way when you read the news. So tell us more about what is driving people to stop reading or listening to the news. Well, the world can be a really tough place. And it can feel pretty relentless, the pace of news. Uh, if you think about those people who told the survey that they are avoiding the news, a third of them are basically saying they're steering clear of stories about the war of Ukraine. That's here in the U.S. actually, interestingly, closer to the conflict in Eastern Europe. Even more people said they avoided war in Ukraine. Back here at home in the U.S., over two-fifths of people say they avoid news about national politics. You know, it's at such high stakes, no clear resolutions. Uh, and, and an equal number of passing up stories about social justice. And there's some interesting ideological breakdowns, too, on the right and left. Different stories uh, turn them off uh, where they feel there's a overemphasis on them. And obviously, this is not good for the news business. But what about the societal implications? What about that? Well, there are real questions. Uh, you know, I think that there's a hardening of people in silos. So they go to news where it becomes comfort foods. You Obviously, cable news on both the right and the left are an example of that, even if they don't play out identically. But people often take their conversations these days, as, as I've heard from folks and as reported in this study, uh, to private channels like WhatsApp groups or, or Telegram or, or places like that where they they essentially are having private conversations about news subjects with friends and not as much exposed to stuff on social media. You've seen engagement on Facebook and Google go down uh, where they might have some cross-pollination of information there. So, you know, I think that the real question is how do we spur and encourage uh, civic engagement and public discourse at a time when people are saying, you know, I don't want more of that. Uh, You see conservatives saying in particular, I don't want to see things about social justice, things about climate change. You see liberals saying, don't talk to me about uh, crime and, and criminal justice. It's just turning me off. Is there any advice for people who want to stay informed but also want to protect their mental health? How do they find the balance? You know, look, there is joy 
and wonder and discovery in the world to be found and explored and presented to, to readers and listeners and viewers. I think news organizations have to remember that that is part of a balanced diet, shall we say, even as we can't turn away from war. You want to have dessert, but you can't do it all the time. And, you know, social media, you know, describes itself as snackable content. Uh, it's a lot like candy a lot of the time. And it's very easy, particularly on places like TikTok, to avoid news or just to just not even stumble across it so that you're not even consciously avoiding it. So the question is, are you getting a balanced diet? And the question is, are you going to the same places every time? And I'd encourage you to spread your aperture wider so that you're pulling from not just a, a balanced diet, but a differentiated diet so it's not from the same place. NPR's media correspondent, David Folkenflik. David, thank you. You bet. This is All Things Considered. Could two problems add up to a solution? One problem is vacant office space. A new Stanford study says since 2019, there's been a five-fold increase in the amount of time Americans spend working from home. Another problem is lack of housing. In a Politico survey of U.S. mayors, more than 70 percent said their cities need significantly more housing. So what if people could live in some of those unused office spaces? It sounds like a simple solution, right? But... It's not. No, it really isn't. And Elsa, I find it nerdily fascinating to learn what does and doesn't work when it comes to trying to convert office space into living space. So we called Robert Fuller of the architecture firm Gensler because he's worked on these type of conversions. And one of the first things to know is that Fuller says buildings constructed before the 1950s are usually more conducive to being turned into housing than newer ones. A lot of the kind of older pre-war office buildings have already been converted and tend to work fairly well. What we're seeing now is a flood of buildings built in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s that were much deeper. You know, the advent of air conditioning, <laughs> fluorescent lighting, you know, allowed these much larger floor plate buildings. Um, and those tend to be a little bit more challenging. One of the biggest problems with those newer office buildings is they're so large that the center of them often has no natural light, no windows. So what do you do about that dark, dead space in the middle? Yeah, it's one of the biggest challenges we face. There's some buildings, for example, I'm thinking of 180 Water Street here in New York City, that they actually cut a light well into the middle of the building and actually were able to have units facing into that light well. It actually turned out to be pretty successful, like an internal skylight almost. Mm, that sounds kind of cool. Very cool. Fuller said another option is to embrace the darker middle of a big building by keeping housing units on the outside edges and using the center for group spaces or communal spaces on multiple floors. We did a project in Philadelphia called Franklin Tower, and we did exactly that. They tended to be things that didn't necessarily need direct access to windows, right? Gyms, spinning classes, shared kitchens if you had a big event that you couldn't do in your unit. And so it was kind of this interesting vertical spine of amenities that took advantage of what would otherwise be underutilized space. I like that vertical spine of amenities. <laughs> Fuller also told us that apartments could extend into that windowless middle and take advantage of that dark center for something they don't mind doing in the dark. Right, like for a home office, which is something more people want these days. You know, it kind of dovetails nicely with 
the work from home momentum that we've all seen being maintained post-COVID and is you could do a great work from home space deeper into the unit, for example. Fuller also said converting old office space is usually less expensive than constructing a brand new apartment or condo building from scratch. But different regulations and incentives make all of this easier in some cities than others. And conversions are still pricey enough that the trend is rolling out relatively slowly. So I think there are plenty of people kind of waiting on the sidelines, waiting for those costs to drop to the right point where it makes sense financially to go in, purchase the buildings and do the conversions. That was Robert Fuller, a principal at the architecture firm Gensler, sharing some of the work that goes into turning those old nine to five spaces into new homes. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, we talk with author Jamal Brinkley about his new short story collection. In our forecast, a severe thunderstorm watch is posted until 8 p.m. tonight for much of the state. We're going to see showers and thunderstorms with lows in the 60s tonight. Should be sunny tomorrow, though, with highs in the 80s. And that's our forecast for Sunday and Monday as well. Another chance of scattered showers on Tuesday. It is 77 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. Another indictment for Donald Trump. How's he paying his legal fees? Also, Summer is for Cousins, a new picture book that captures the fun and chaos of vacations with extended family. Who likes to be at the beach? Who would be probably talking on the phone? Who is probably eating snacks right now? Who wants to go home? Those stories, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Author Jamel Brinkley is earning new praise as one of the best short story writers of his generation. And if you ask him why he writes, he says it comes down to obsessions and questions. Something will capture my imagination. It could be a particular place. It could be a voice. It could be an image. And that thing will stay with me, Um, not because I fully understand it, but because I don't. Estranged lovers, delivery drivers, and ghosts are among the latest obsessions he explores in the new book, Witness. It's Brinkley's second collection of short stories. He says the theme of bearing witness is inspired by another writer, James Baldwin. He talks about the ways in which being a witness and being an actor are in very close relation, but it's, it's sometimes hard to go from being a witness to someone who's acting responsibly. Another fascination that's evident in the book is with his hometown of New York City. I asked Jamel Brinkley about what continues to draw him back there in his writing. New York is just the place that continues to fire my imagination. It's a place that I feel I know 
really well, but it's also a place that continues to baffle me and to be kind of a mystery. And I think that combination of knowing something really well and that thing also being sort of utterly mysterious to you is is um, perfect for art. One of the things that I really appreciated about the way that you wrote about New York across this collection is the impact of gentrification. I love that you wrote about in, I believe it's the first story in the collection, the drivers parading by in their eco-friendly cars and the cyclists who actually wore helmets and biking shorts who were popping up in this landscape. What were you hoping that the reader would take away from the way that the city is evolving? Yeah, I think there are layers to it. Um, One, there's just the fact of gentrification itself, the sense of what does it mean to be native to a place or to be an insider or to be an outsider, which I think is actually a difficult question. But part of it is just this personal thing that's happening. What does it mean to live in this place that's eroding, changing, transforming? It's, it's a very difficult question. I want to turn now to another story in this collection. It's called Comfort. And as it begins, we meet this young woman. Her name's Simone. And she's waking up hungover from the night before with a man sleeping next to her who we don't immediately meet. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about Simone? Yeah, Simone is, um, she's a young woman. And this story is set in the aftermath of, of a horrible, dramatic act, her brother, has been murdered um, in a situation of of police violence. Um, She's deeply unsettled, deeply saddened by what has happened to her brother. And the story is sort of tracking how she's getting through the days. At times during the story, you see and hear her sort of really wrestling with the humanity of the police officer in question, who's called Brody, picturing herself in the officer's wife's place. What is it that Simone is trying to work out for herself about what has happened here? What's happened to her brother? What happened to her brother is is a thing that you never want to imagine can happen, you know, to someone who's close to you. But unfortunately, it's something that happens all too often in our country. And I think in in sort of a painful way or even in a perverse way, she's trying to comprehend what happened. She's trying to comprehend how anyone could do this. It was a difficult story to write. It came very slowly. I could only write a little bit of it at, at a time. In a story like this, you, you have to try to understand her. And so I really had to put myself close to her. And it was difficult. Your debut collection, A Lucky Man, prompted this big discussion about the ways in which you portrayed men and masculinity in your writing. But I have to say, as I was reading this collection, I found myself really drawn to the ways in which you write women characters, their sensuality, the ways in which they navigate relationships, how they fit into and anchor families. What inspired you to write from these more feminine perspectives or centering some some women in these stories? There were at least two reasons. One had everything to do with A Lucky Man, actually, and the reaction to that book. And obviously the book is about masculinity. I didn't want to be boxed in as sort of a masculinity writer. And I felt like I had to show that I could do more in my writing. Another reason is that I come from a a family of tons of women. Um, My mom has several sisters, and I feel like I was very much raised by women, and I kind of wanted to um, turn my attention more to that dynamic. When you're writing, 
Who is the reader that you're writing for when you're putting these stories together? Are there things that you presume about the people who are picking up this book and reading it? Hmm. You know, on some level, I don't have a reader in mind, except maybe someone like myself. But when I do conceptualize a reader, I think of someone like my mom reading these stories. You know, one of the things I'm looking forward to doing in the next few days is handing a copy over to my mom and giving her the opportunity to read it. Um, so I, th- I think about people who are close to me, who can read a story and appreciate it and, and see the beauty and then the complexity and what's going on. You know, one thing that I found sort of interesting as I was reading is there was a presumption that I was reading works about Black people and Blackness in our world, though you never had to explicitly say that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I mentioned myself and I mentioned my mom and, you know, <laughs> both Black readers, African-American readers. It is noticeable when you see the a, a work of fiction signposting when a character is not white, which of course tells you who the presumed reader is. So with these stories, rather than have their Blackness pointed to in some explicit way, I wanted it to show up in other ways, right? The the ways that they speak, um, certain cultural cues, the syntax of their sentences, where they live, the rhythms of the prose, like those are ways that you can um, index African-Americans and African-American culture too. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, just as a reader, there was almost this level of comfort of feeling in community with the characters in the book that in a Mm. way that a book that might more explicitly signpost race or not prominently feature black characters, you wouldn't feel that. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that, actually. That's that's exactly the kind of feeling I, I, I um, I want you to have as a reader of this book. Earlier in our conversation, you said something to the effect of that when you're writing, part of the writing process is about answering questions that stick with you. And I'm wondering if there was a big question you were hoping to answer in this collection. If so, if you feel like you found that answer. I don't know if I found any specific answers. I think the exploration of the questions um, has been really useful. And I think really the, the big question for me was was how to how people can push themselves to see what they need to see instead of what they just want to see, you know? And then once you do that, can you act responsibly? Those were the big questions, and I feel like I explored those questions. Answers, I'm not so sure about. Author Jamel Brinkley, his new collection of stories is Witness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics with Shortcomings, a new comedy directed by Randall Park starring Justin H. Min as a film geek who seeks an ideal relationship when his girlfriend leaves for a New York internship, now playing only in theaters. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations, including foundations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is WBUR. Looks like showers and thunderstorms tonight. Temperatures will go down into the 60s, but sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s and sunshine on Sunday. Temperatures in the mid-80s. It is 77 degrees at 5 o'clock.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And The Wilbur, with comedian Mike Birbiglia this holiday season on his Christmas Parmesan tour. New shows added December 19th to 23rd. Info at TheWilbur.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukraine says its sea drones hit a major Russian port and damaged a warship as the Black Sea becomes an important battleground in the war. It's Friday, August 4th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, today's jobs report. Also this hour, people in Lebanon seek accountability for the explosion at the port of Beirut three years ago. For me, there is no anniversary. It's a continuation of uh, the same day. Plus, we visit the growing tent encampment at the Mass and Cass area of Boston amid calls for a new approach to deal with the violence there. It's worse in terms of the atmosphere and the and the level of violence and the anarchy. It's 501. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Diplomats and security advisors from around 40 countries are set to meet in Saudi Arabia this weekend, where they'll discuss a peace agreement to end Russia's war on Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv that Russia is not invited. China's foreign ministry said the country's special envoy for Eurasian affairs would also attend the talks, a win for the Ukrainians who want China involved. India also confirmed it will be sending a representative. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he hopes those attending the summit will endorse his vision for peace. This vision includes Russia withdrawing from all Ukrainian territory and the setting up of a tribunal to prosecute tens of thousands of alleged Russian war crimes. Ukraine also wants to expand its diplomatic support to include countries that have remained neutral during Russia's war on Ukraine. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Investigators in New York say they've identified a woman whose partial remains were found almost three years ago, but officials won't say whether she's connected to the suspect in the Gilgo Beach serial killer investigation. Desiree DiOrio from member station WSHU has more. Investigators say that partial human remains found on Fire Island in 1996 and additional remains found near Gilgo Beach in 2011 belong to to Karen Vergata, a New York City resident. Suffolk County DA Ray Tierney would not say whether her death is linked to Rex Hewerman, the Long Island man arrested last month and charged with the murders of three women found near Gilgo Beach. We're going to have no comment on what, if any, suspects we developed at this time. This is a confidential investigation. 
Tierney says genealogical DNA was used to identify Vergata. No charges have been filed in her murder, and the investigation is ongoing. For NPR News, I'm Desiree DiOrio in New York. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers is meeting with the Writers Guild of America today. NPR's Chloe Veltman says it represents the first time the two sides will be getting together since the Hollywood writers' strike started three months ago. The producers' president, Carol Lombardini, requested the meeting with the writers' chief negotiator, Ellen Stutzman, in order to to discuss how to resume labor contract negotiations. Both sides declined NPR's requests for comment. But in a statement sent to its members on Thursday, the Writers Guild accused the studios of using an old playbook focused on spreading disinformation to discredit the writers' campaign for better working conditions. In a counterstatement, the producers called the WGA's rhetoric unfortunate, adding, quote, our only playbook is getting people back to work. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. The government in its closely watched monthly employment figure says the economy added 187,000 jobs in July. That was fewer than expected. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 150 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Federal prosecutors say the Massachusetts Air National Guardsmen accused of leaking top-secret government documents should remain in custody. Jack Teixeira is appealing a magistrate judge's decision to hold him while he awaits charges under the Espionage Act. Teixeira's attorneys compared his case to that of former President Trump, who remains free while facing charges in his own classified documents case. Prosecutors filed documents today suggesting that Teixeira is a national security risk. They say he could flee with the help of a foreign adversary seeking government secrets. Some Massachusetts cities and towns are getting help from the state to pay for street and bridge repairs and other transportation projects. In Lowell today, Governor Healy signed the Infrastructure Funding Bill. She says the money can be spent on various projects, including the installation of new bike lanes. It also authorizes $175 million for additional infrastructure programs statewide that will support access to buses, commuter rail, and other forms of transit. The bill also authorizes a total of $375 million to be made available. The Old South Meeting House will undergo major renovations to repair damage from flooding. Nat Shidley is president of the nonprofit that manages the historic landmark, and he says the Old South Meeting House on Washington Street will remain open during the work. Especially right now, it feels like a very important space. Uh, We're commemorating the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, which began with meetings at Old South Meeting House this year. And, you know, we just know that the the site is going to be increasingly important to um, local residents and to visitors alike. The organization received almost $500,000 in federal funding to begin the work. Red Sox open a weekend series against the Blue Jays at Fenway Park tonight. And showers and thunderstorms in our forecast tonight as severe thunderstorm watches posted until 8 p.m. Lows tonight will be in the 60s, but looks like sunshine tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. We start this hour with the latest jobs numbers, numbers that over the past several months have been of great interest to economists and investors because the U.S. is trying to battle back inflation without triggering widespread layoffs. New government data show the pace of hiring didn't change much in July. The U.S. added 187,000 jobs. Job growth has slowed overall since the beginning of the year, but employers are still adding more than enough jobs to keep the unemployment rate near a 50-year low. That boosts the chances that the Federal Reserve may be able to pull off a hoped-for soft landing, meaning curbing inflation without tipping the economy into recession. NPR's Scott Horsley is here with more. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sasha. Scott, what sectors are these new jobs coming from? Healthcare was the big winner last month. Uh, financial services also added a lot of jobs. Bars and restaurants had a pretty muted hiring month, uh, in part because of really hot weather. Will Grennan's family runs the Republic of Texas restaurant in San Antonio, which is a landmark on the popular river walk there. Grennan says walking along the river to lunch or dinner is not so attractive, given the kind of heat they've had this summer. I have lost count of how many days we've been over 100 degrees. Now, we've got 200 seats, and the 100 of them are outside. And so extreme heats like this, then, yeah, I mean, right away, half of our restaurant closes. Yeah, it's definitely affected business dramatically. We saw similar slowdowns in places like Birmingham and Phoenix. Uh, Nationwide restaurants added only about 13,000 jobs last month. So restaurants may be losing a bit of business. Are any sectors actually losing jobs? Information, which is a kind of a catch-all category, lost about 12,000 jobs. Some of that's related to the ongoing strikes in Hollywood, which have idled movie and TV production. Factories shed about 2,000 jobs last month. Construction, which ordinarily suffers when interest rates go up, actually held up surprisingly well. Uh, There's a lot of demand for new houses because there's so few existing homes on the market. Construction companies added about 19,000 jobs in July. A precious Violet recently changed careers to go into construction after doing mostly off office jobs in the past, and she told me how excited she was when she got her first pair of steel-toed boots. <laughs> I didn't want to take them off because I, <laughs> I would w- walk around and model them for my mom, and, and we would take photos and videos, and I felt proud when I walked around in public with them and on the job site because I blended right in. Violet, who lives in Winooski, Vermont, is now working as an apprentice carpenter and says it's especially satisfying to see the results of her handiwork each day. Uh, By the way, Sasha, of all the jobs that were added last month, about three-quarters went to women. Oh, really? Why more women than men? The industries that are growing the fastest right now, like healthcare, employ a lot of women, whereas male-dominated industries like manufacturing are shrinking. Uh, You might remember just before the pandemic, women briefly outnumbered men on U.S. payrolls, uh, but their ranks were hit hard when a lot of in-person services shut down. That's now turning around. Uh, In July, women accounted for just under half of all payroll jobs, 49.9%. And given the sectors that are growing, it wouldn't be surprising to see them climb back in the majority. Employers have been having to pay more to find new workers. Are wages still going up? Uh, They are. Average wages in July were up 4.4 percent from a year ago, uh, similar to the gain we saw in June. Now, wage growth has moderated because employers are not quite so desperate as they used to be. The good news is inflation has cooled off as well. So in May and June, paychecks actually grew faster than prices and workers got a real boost in their purchasing power. We'll see if that trend continued in July when we get those inflation numbers next week. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. 
Today marks three years since an explosion at a port in Beirut killed more than 220 people and devastated swaths of the capital city. But no senior officials in Lebanon have been prosecuted over the blast, even though they had been warned it could happen. Now, victims are searching for other routes to justice. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has this story with help from journalist Jawad Rizala in Beirut. And we want to note that this story contains some disturbing details. It was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in recorded history. Fire and then a giant shockwave from Beirut port ripped through the capital city, damaging tens of thousands of homes and wrecking lives. That day I lost my husband of 20 years. Tanya Dao Alam says in the moments after the explosion, herself still bleeding from broken glass, she called out for her husband, Freddie. I went to him, he was lying on his stomach. I tried to turn him and I realized that um, his throat was cut open from the glass and he had pierced lungs. So I tried to stop the blood, but I learned later that he was killed on the spot. Dao Alam is a lawyer and she's come to a meeting at Lebanon's Lawyers Syndicate for an update on the investigation into the blast on this third anniversary. But there is little new to say. There has long been evidence that senior leaders, including the then president and prime minister, failed to act on warnings about the improperly stored ammonium nitrate that caused the explosion. But three years on, no senior official has been prosecuted for this. The investigation here has been blocked for a long time because of political interference. When Lebanon's lead investigator charged top officials in connection with the explosion, many of those officials tried to dismiss the investigator, effectively freezing the inquiry. This week, some 300 organisations and individuals signed a joint letter to the United Nations Human Rights Council asking for an international fact-finding mission to come and investigate the blast. It's something that the international community could do, even without the cooperation of the Lebanese government, to try to advance accountability. Lema Faki from Human Rights Watch in Beirut says the fact-finding mission could push for answers. This would result in an official report that would lay out responsibility for the explosion. And it could help to put more pressure on officials in Lebanon to allow the domestic process to move forward. And it could also be used in judicial proceedings in other countries. Some families of the victims have found ways to file lawsuits outside of Lebanon. For example, Lebanese claimants recently won a court case in the UK against the chemical trading firm suspected of having owned the ammonium nitrate that caused the explosion. Near the blast site now, bars and restaurants have been rebuilt and are once again full. But this doesn't mean that people have moved on. Tracy Siam says she can't forget the day of the blast. So for me, there is no anniversary. It's a continuation of uh, the same day. And few Lebanese believe they will see justice in their own country unless outside pressure is brought to bear on Lebanon's leaders. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News. Matt Reed has visited all seven continents and both the North and South Poles, but some of his best travel memories happened aboard U.S. passenger trains. He's 84 now, 
And as of his trip last month to Brunswick, Maine, he says he's now ridden every mile of the Amtrak map. Nat Reed, congratulations on what I assume not many other people have done. And thank you for coming on our show to talk about it. Well, thanks so much for having me. I believe that Amtrak's network is more than 21,000 miles. Did riding the whole thing start out for you as a goal, or did you get to a point where you realized, I'm almost there, I might as well keep going? It was the latter, actually. I was looking at the map about three or four years ago, uh, realized how many of those spokes I had been on, and so with a colored marker, I started to uh, color in the routes and uh, realized that I wasn't very far away from doing all of them. So I uh, took a week and did about, oh, maybe four or 5,000 miles to take in the longer stretches that I hadn't done. And then COVID hit. And I put this aside for a few years and very recently picked it up again. And uh, on July the 21st, I uh, colored in the last of those spokes. And that was from Boston to Brunswick, Maine. Oh, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. In fact, after I finished it, I took trains all the way back to Los Angeles. Now, obviously, if you wanted to see more of the country in detail, you could do that in a car by driving on your own. But is there something about the train experience that you think lets you see or experience the country in a different way than in a car? On a train, I sit on the top of a two-story magic carpet while watching a Technicolor diorama scrolling beside me as I progress from the mountains to the prairie, from sea to shining sea. And that's unique to railroads. I never tire of coasting to a stop in another small town and watching a cluster of pickup trucks at the station and people coming together, friends and kin to express their love and their bonding. To me, this is America with a flag that is equal parts blue and red. And I see the railroad tracks across America as the lace that ties us together. Oh, I love that answer. That is such a good philosophy for today and our, and our country today. During your final trip last month from Boston to Brunswick, how did you feel when you were rolling into that last station? Oh, I felt euphoria. The conductors on the train made an announcement that we have on the train today, uh, Mr. Nat Reed, who is completely, you know, the, made the whole announcement. It was actually a, a rather long announcement. So when we got to the station, people were lining up to have their picture taken with this <laughs> this famous person. That was so, you. Uh, that was, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of fun. There was a 13-year-old boy whose dream it had been to uh, go to every part of the Amtrak train system. The fact that he had actually met a person who had done that, he, uh, you know, stuttered, asked if he could have his picture taken with him. I said, <laughs> of course, come here. That's great. Nat Reed has now ridden every mile on the Amtrak rail network, one of many of the adventures and goals in his life he's completed. Nat, congratulations. Thanks for talking about this. Oh, thank you, Sasha, for asking me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker, and in Boston, thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we'll have a conversation with Afghan-American artist Ariana Delawari about her latest album. On Wall Street Today, stocks closed lower. The Dow dropped 150 points. The S&P 500 was down 23. In local business news, there are more biotech job cuts in the Boston area being reported today. The Boston Business Journal is reporting that Newton-based Carrier Farm Therapeutics is laying off about 20 percent of its workforce. That's believed to be about 75 workers. A company spokesperson says about a third of them are based in Massachusetts. Elsewhere, Cambridge-based startup Celsius Therapeutics announced that it's laying off 30 workers and will be left with about 10 employees. It's 19 minutes past 5. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open. A new experience atop the Pru with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views, featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Showers and thunderstorms. Tonight, a severe thunderstorm watch is posted until 8 p.m. for much of the state. Lows will be in the 60s tonight. Sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s and sunshine Sunday with temperatures in the mid-80s. You can take WBUR along wherever you're heading this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up with what's happening. Download or update the WBUR app today. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. Moments after musician Ariana Delawari set foot in our studio at NPR West, the space was transformed. This is a scarf from Afghanistan. That was my mom. Does she wear it often? She did. This was like... Along with her guitar, she laid out traditional Afghan clothing and photos from her trips to Afghanistan over the years. This is me in 2002 at the inauguration of a girls' school. Oh, my goodness. This is shortly after your parents moved back to Afghanistan? Yeah. Oh, wow. And she brought a large frame portrait of a young girl whose face is covered with cloth. So this was a gift from my sister. And this was right after the fall of Afghanistan. This little girl... She has a cardboard cutout of a guitar in her yeah. arms. So when the country fell, she had to destroy her instrument for her safety. Delaware grew up here in Los Angeles, but her ties to Afghanistan run quite deep. Her father was born and raised there. Her mother was half Sicilian, half Afghan. And both of them spent years inside and outside the country working to improve the lives of Afghan people. They took in friends and family, people who had fled Afghanistan after the Soviet invasion in 1979. 
our home became a source of celebration. So we had live Afghan music, food, and potlucks, and it was so special. I think the rest of my life I've always wanted to recreate it in some capacity. For Delawari, her own activism often comes in the form of art. She spent years traveling the country and produced a documentary film about the experience. And her debut album, out in 2009, features elder Afghan musicians whose music was re-emerging after years of suppression by the Taliban. Her newest album is out today. It's called I Will Remember. The music in this album came to Delawari as she was mourning the loss of her mother, who died in 2020, and the loss of Afghanistan, which fell to the Taliban again in 2021. It's so sad because the truth of our culture is full of art and expression. And to think that it's all back to square one and that artists in the country, like the people of the country, created this whole change and movement to bring art back and now it's suppressed again. But the spirit of the people, no way. Like Afghans, we are resilient. We have a history of being warriors. You know, Afghanistan is the center of Asia and that's like the most prime real estate of the planet. And so if you're, <laughs> I like that. If you're like at the center of what everyone wants access to, you become a warrior. But who wants to be a warrior, right? I am wondering, how has your love for Afghanistan helped you think differently about your own relationship with America? because I was struck by some of the lyrics in the song, Blood and the Fame. Can you tell me who you're speaking to there, what you're speaking about exactly? Is that about America? Yeah, I wrote that song at a time when there was so much going on with police brutality, with indigenous people protecting their land and water and all of these causes that we have here. And I just was feeling disgusted with mm -hmm. my American identity. And I'm here. I can't physically be in Afghanistan the way that I was. And I'm now really contemplating how to approach my American identity with my Afghan understanding mm -hmm. and what my contribution can be here because we all have these different stories. And so how do we weave them? into a new dream together. Yeah. I am the doorway to eternal space and time. I am the key to a freer mind. A lot of this album is also about the memory of your mother. How has making the album helped you process your grief, your mourning for your mother? You know, I wanted to honor her. My mom was such an incredible mind and spirit. She was one of 12 children. Wow. <laughs> so my mom had no money 
faced so much racism and, and Islamophobia. And so she was so passionate about the underdog, whatever it was in society. I mean, I remember like every single time I'd go to a restaurant with my mom, mm -hmm. she would have a pep talk in LA with all the waiters. Are you an actor? And she had a Jersey accent. She'd be like, whatever you want to do with your life, you could do it, do it. You can, you, your dreams can come true. Then yeah. she would go over to the manager and say, I just want you to know that this buster was outstanding. And she just had this, um, she had like a, a deep passion for other people's dreams coming true. Even people she didn't know well. Everyone. What a gift her life was to so many people. Yeah, it was different than my father who had more of the prestige of being recognized for his work. She, mm -hmm. she wasn't recognized for her work. But for her, it was about recognizing others. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the things that she taught me about revolution, about honoring the earth, about each other. That theme I tried to carry through the whole album. But one song, each step, I woke up, it was like the first of the year in 2020, and I knew, I just had this feeling I wasn't gonna have her for very much longer. And I wrote that song thinking about her and Whatever our lives are or aren't, what matters is the people we love. Life with you has been the greatest gift I've ever had. And someday when we're gone, I promise I'll pass it on. Before Delaware gathered all her photos and artifacts that she had brought into the studio, she left us with a song. I heard. musician and activist Ariana Delawari. Her new album is called I Will Remember. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening this afternoon. Just ahead on All Things Considered, we examine some of the reasons why former President Trump wants to have his trial moved from Washington, D.C. to West Virginia. Showers and thunderstorms expected tonight. In fact, a severe thunderstorm watch is posted for much of the state until 8 p.m. We'll see lows going down into the 60s tonight. Tomorrow it should be mostly sunny with highs in the 80s, and that's our forecast for Sunday as well. Right now it is 76 degrees in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
and Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Hey, it's Peter Sagel. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Big rainstorms are pounding northern New York and Vermont, sparking another round of dangerous flash flooding. And as NPR's Brian Mann tells us, more rain is expected tonight. The Champlain Valley that lies between northern New York State and Vermont again saw intense rain and thunderstorms over 24 hours, knocking out power, blocking roads, and bringing more high water. Officials say Middlebury, Vermont, saw a month's worth of rain in a three-hour burst. The National Weather Service says another two inches of rain is possible here in Essex County, New York, through 9 p.m. tonight. These latest storms come after weeks of wet weather that saturated the ground and pushed many rivers to the flood stage. Farmers and the region's tourism businesses have struggled, especially in areas where road service has been disrupted. Vermont Governor Phil Scott issued a warning urging motorists to be wary. There is relief in the forecast with sunny, dry weather expected through the weekend. Brian Mann, NPR News in Westport, New York. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is now the second Republican presidential hopeful to make a surprise visit to Ukraine, touring ravaged villages and meeting with Ukraine's president today. Christie said he was thankful for the opportunity to see the impact from Russia's invasion up close. He says he will share his experience back home and push for continued support for Ukraine. There will always be political arguments in America, as you know, as there are everywhere. Um, but I believe that the overwhelming majority of the American people um, understand that we need to be with Ukraine on this fight. Former Vice President and GOP hopeful Mike Pence made a trip to Ukraine back in June, while party frontrunner Donald Trump has called on congressional Republicans to halt all military support for Ukraine until the Biden administration cooperates with the GOP-led investigation into Biden and his son's business dealings. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. This summer, parts of the North Atlantic Ocean have reached temperatures hotter than ever recorded in history. But the Gulf of Maine is bucking the global trend. WBUR's Barbara Moran explains why. For decades, the Gulf of Maine has been warming three and a half times faster than the global average. This summer, the Gulf is still warming, but not with the record-breaking numbers seen in the rest of the North Atlantic. Scientists aren't quite sure why, but suspect that a cool summer has helped with the breaks on the hot water. Dave Reedmiller is the director of the Climate Center at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. It was unusually rainy, gray, and really sort of overcast for much of June and July. This is highly unusual in New England this time of year, which has just sort of kept cooler, wetter conditions here. Even with this slight reprieve, the temperature in the Gulf of Maine is still trending up. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. 
Beverly Middle School is undergoing extensive repairs after recent flooding caused by a leaky water faucet. Eighteen classrooms on four floors were damaged, five of them extensively. The school department says the building should be able to open in time for the start of the new school year on August 28th. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is currently acting mayor of the city. He's temporarily in charge because Mayor Michelle Wu is on vacation with her family. She left Wednesday and is expected to return August 12th. It may take longer than expected for some people to get their car or truck to or from Martha's Vineyard today. One of the Steamship Authority's ferries between Cape Cod and the Vineyard has been taken out of service. The authority says it is adding one extra trip each way tonight to try to accommodate vehicles that may not have made it on an earlier trip. In our forecast, showers and thunderstorms tonight as severe thunderstorm watches posted for much of the state until 8 p.m. Temperatures in the 60s tonight, mostly sunny tomorrow, though. Highs in the 80s, and that's our forecast for Sunday and Monday as well. It is 75 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from BritBox, with the new season of Silent Witness, every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The latest criminal case against former President Trump for allegedly conspiring to overturn the 2020 election is set to be tried in Washington, D.C. But Trump and his legal team have said they want the trial, if there is a trial, to be moved to West Virginia. Here's what his attorney, John Laurel, told my colleague Sasha Pfeiffer on this program earlier this week when she asked him, why was that? We're looking for a jury that will be more balanced. And West Virginia was a state that was more evenly divided. Now, it's very unlikely that a request to move the trial to West Virginia would be granted. But to talk more about West Virginia's political leanings, we have Hoppy Kirchival on the line. He's a longtime radio broadcaster in the state who hosts the program Talkline on West Virginia Metro News. Welcome, Hoppy. Thanks, Elsa. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, first, we should note up front that you are very much not a supporter of Trump. In fact, you think he's, quote, disqualified himself because of what happened after the 2020 presidential election. But I want to unpack his lawyer's claims a bit more. Loro says that West Virginia was a state that was more evenly divided than, say, the population in Washington, D.C. How does that claim square with how your state voted in 2020? He's right in that it's more evenly divided than Washington, D.C., because 95 percent of the people in Washington voted for Joe Biden. But it's not very evenly divided the other way. I mean, this is a state that Donald Trump won uh, with almost 70 percent of the vote in 2016 and 2020. If he ran again today, despite the indictments, he would easily carry West Virginia. And 
Explain to listeners why you think Trump is so popular in West Virginia. One of the reasons is demographics. West Virginia is a largely white, 90% white, working-class state. Second of all, it's a, it's a pro-energy state with coal and natural gas, and uh, Donald Trump has uh, spoken very positively about those industries, and Donald Trump campaigned in West Virginia. What about the judiciary? What can you tell us about the makeup of the federal judiciary there? There are a number of federal judges here who have been around for a good while who have largely been appointed by Democrats, but they have, they, each of them has a good reputation of being fair. Uh, I think that uh, whoever was on trial could expect a fair hearing before any of these judges in West Virginia. Tell me about some of the conversations that you've been having with many of your listeners about Trump as as they're processing this news that he's now facing three indictments. Well, uh, some of it, I host a daily talk show, and some of those conversations have been pretty testy, I must tell you. I imagine you. so. Uh, because, again, uh, this, there's many, many people in West Virginia who are supportive of Donald Trump. They feel like, as you, I'm sure you have heard, that there's this two-tier justice system. And there are a lot of folks who just feel like that West Virginia was doing better under Donald Trump than under Joe Biden. I saw a poll the other day, New York Times and Siena, that said that 35% of those who support Donald Trump are just unwavering. And I would say in West Virginia, that number is even higher. I would say that number is you know, closer to 60%. So he could be indicted, you know, he's indicted three times, he could be indicted 33 times. And the more he gets indicted, the more entrenched his support gets in many parts of West Virginia. That was Hoppy Kerchival. He hosts the program Talkline on West Virginia Metro News. Thank you so much, Hoppy. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Two new indie films, Passages and Shortcomings, open this weekend. Critic Bob Mondello says both center their stories on filmmakers who lead disruptive, messy lives. You're likely to take an instant dislike to Tomas in Passages. Stop, 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 stop. What are you doing with your hands? We meet him on the set of a film he's directing, dissatisfied with everything and everyone. This is just a transition moment. But we are turning it into a huge drama moment because you're not able to make some simple steps down the staircase. Everybody's waiting for you. At an after party, things aren't all that different. He snaps at his husband, Martin. Can you at least try not to look so bored? We're trying to celebrate you. Thomas, I just don't feel like dancing. It's my party and my husband doesn't want to dance with you. I'll dance with you. Agathe is beautiful, and Tomas ends up doing more than just dancing with her, a fact he's openly boastful about when he comes home to Martin the next morning. You know what I was doing last night? No, but whatever it was, you sound very excited. I had sex with a woman. Can I tell you about it, please? The arrogance is breathtaking, toxic, really, and you see the pain in Martin's eyes even as he swallows it. It's fine, Thomas, it's fine. This always happens when you finish a film, you just forget. It's actually not fine this time, and things get complicated. Agath will soon be just as bruised as Martin, and director Ira Sachs makes sure the cause of their suffering suffers too. Though Thomas is so self-absorbed, it sometimes takes him a while to realize how royally he's screwing up. In a film shoot where power dynamics are on his side, Thomas can be as petulant as he wants. In life, when that behavior ends up driving people away, he doesn't get to edit the outcome. Screening tonight went really well. Why are you here? I wanted to tell you, Fred. No, come on, let's have a drink. No, you can't stay here. Don't drink. Come on. Don't be, you can't stay. One toast. Come on. It was really great. People were clapping. No clapping in real life. So many passages to growing up. So little progress. At least his movie was a hit. 
In Shortcomings, a hit movie feels like an affront to Ben when he attends a Crazy Rich Asian-style comedy at an Asian American film festival, though his girlfriend Miko suspects he might just be jealous. We've waited a long time to see ourselves reflected in, in a... a garish mainstream rom-com that glorifies a capitalistic fantasy of vindication through wealth and materialism. Okay! I guess I thought you might be able to see, like, beyond your own snobby tastes. Have we just met? Ha! It's a game changer, okay? And now, when you or some other Asian American filmmaker wants to make a movie that's cooler or more artsy or whatever, and they're suddenly able to get funding, well, they should get down on their knees and bow down to that garish mainstream hit that cleared the way for them. Ben's not a bowing down kind of guy. He manages a failing San Francisco art house cinema and complains about everything, really. As when Miko says she's gotten an internship in Manhattan. Trust me, New York is overrated. It's so gentrified now. How many times have you even been there? Are we counting layovers? Look, it doesn't matter. There's no way I'm moving to New York for three months, all right? I wasn't really asking you to. Okay, time to regroup. Miko's no sooner departed for New York than Ben is commiserating with his lesbian pal Alice about dating one of his employees. Ew, how old is she? 23, 24, 25. Probably the same age as your waitress. Okay, that's different. How is that different? Everything's less creepy without the hetero power dynamics. He plays the indie Alice. filmmaker's sympathy card on a date with someone else. He's trying to be the next Eric Romer or something but I had to accept eventually that I was just the current Ben Tagawa. Plays a more abrasive card on yet another date and gets told off in no uncertain terms. One day I hope you'll understand that this really is just about you. Working from a graphic novel by Adrian Tamine, director and comedian Randall Park has framed Ben, who's played by Justin H. Min, as charming, clever, a committed contrarian, and a bit of a jerk. A man-child of the sort who, back in the early aughts, used to populate Judd Apatow comedies like Knocked Up. Park keeps the tone light and the patter clever enough that though Ben sometimes seems nearly as clueless as Tomas does in passages, he's a lot easier to take in shortcomings, despite his shortcomings. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. At the beginning of the pandemic, many economists thought working from home was just as productive as working in an office. But three years later, the data is changing. Darian Woods and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, found new evidence suggesting that working from home, at least full time, may not be as productive as we once thought. Jose Maria Barrero is one of the top experts in working from home. I'm an assistant professor of finance at ITAM in Mexico City, which is one of the main universities here. Jose says, yes, working hybrid, coming in a couple days a week, is about as productive as being fully in the office. But working fully remotely, five days a week, the productivity there is a whole different story. Now, measuring productivity is tricky business, especially because the kinds of work that can be done remotely tends to be knowledge work, things like marketing or legal work. So the best evidence Jose looked at studies jobs where a clear output is measurable, like police dispatches in Manchester in the UK. Basically, the communication seemed to be more efficient when these two people, the person who received the call, from the citizen and the person who sends the officer to attend to the incident are in the same location. 
And when you tally up a bunch of other studies on fully remote work in other industries, as Jose's done, the evidence for worker productivity... It's anywhere up to a negative 10% effect on productivity. That's significant. I mean, that is significant. In various studies, like the one observing police dispatchers, face-to-face meant workers could complete tasks faster. You could write an email asking for those instructions and for that clarification, and it might delay your action a couple of minutes. That delay seems to be kind of what is what is dropping the productivity, kind of these frictions to communication. Another cause of productivity loss, mentoring and training. We spoke to Emma Harrington, who's an assistant professor at the University of Virginia, and she and her colleagues worked on this study of software engineers and looked at how much these coders helped each other when they were working in the same space versus when they were working apart. You receive about 20% less feedback if you're on a distributed team than if you're all co-located with your teammates. The effects are much more pronounced among those young workers, among those workers who are new to the company, who are the ones who have the most to learn from their more senior coworkers. And just extrapolate these findings out a few years across the world, and you can see that there's a real long-term cost here. Jose agrees. I think a lot of why companies, especially in in knowledge jobs that require interaction or are going for hybrid is because kind of they need the in-person interaction to develop these qualities in workers and basically this human capital and and kind of sense of belonging to the firm. The way this evidence is stacking up, it's not a good look for remote work. I mean, I want to say this is not a takedown of fully remote work. Like there are a ton of reasons why a company might want to do it. Jose says that companies might save on office costs. Plus, it means you can hire talent from around the world. Either way, it seems remote work is here to stay. Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker in Boston. Coming up in just a few minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, author Ben Perkert on his new novel, The Men Can't Be Saved. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR Events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. It's 12 minutes before 6. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. And the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a flexible and relevant degree that helps expand your network and further your career. BC.edu slash analytics. Showers and thunderstorms. In our forecast tonight, a severe thunderstorm watch is posted for much of the state until about 8 p.m. Temperatures in the 60s tonight. Tomorrow, though, mostly sunny highs in the 80s and looks like sunshine summer weather starting Sunday and going through much of next week although at this point it does look like a chance of scattered showers Tuesday and Friday of next week. It is 75 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
it's time for another Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. Here's Hannah Ali. Crook Manifesto by author and Pulitzer Prize winner Colson Whitehead is fresh off the presses. A sequel to Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle, the novel follows Ray Carney, a family man with a criminal past. He's been clean for a few years, but when his daughter asks him for Jackson 5 concert tickets, he turns to his unsavory contacts and winds up in the middle of a murder. In Crook Manifesto, Whitehead uses a compelling crime story to explore 1970s New York City. If you're looking for historical fiction blended with dark humor, Crook Manifesto might just be up your alley. To get weekly book recommendations just like this sent straight to your inbox, subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Several Boston officials are sounding alarms over the growing tent encampment in the area of Boston known as Mass and Cass. The devastation of the nation's opioid epidemic has long been in plain sight around the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Hundreds of people camp out there. Many openly use and deal drugs. Police say they are responding to more violence there, and they're finding more weapons than ever before. For the first time, the program, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, has stopped sending its outreach workers to that neighborhood. The group declined further comment. The Boston Public Health Commission says it's reevaluating its approach to the, quote, worsening crisis to better respond to public safety concerns at Mass and Cass. And Mayor Michelle Wu, who cleared the tents from the area in early 2022 and worked to create transitional housing, says she is formulating a new mass and cast strategy. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is asking the city to declare a public health and public safety emergency. And with that emergency declaration, I believe the city and other authorities would take it to a next level in terms of working to enhance services, programs, but also the importance of public safety in law enforcement in that area. Meantime, State Senator Nick Collins is asking for more support for law enforcement in the area. And State Rep. John Moran is calling on state and Boston police to aggressively patrol the neighborhood and detain those who have outstanding criminal warrants. The Boston Police Patrolman's Union says it's eager to work with the city on this problem. The union says the six to ten officers patrolling Mass and Cass now are just a Band-Aid. And police cannot do what's needed to keep order among among the hundreds of people staying on the streets. On a visit to Mass and Cass this week, there are indeed hundreds of people apparently living on a cordoned-off stretch of Atkinson Street. They're in tents or they're under tarps. Many are openly using drugs, nodding off. Orange syringe caps litter the street. Sue Sullivan, executive director of the New Market Business Association, who coordinates workers to help clean the streets daily, says there's a marked difference in the atmosphere there this summer. It's worse in terms of the atmosphere and the level of violence and the anarchy. There were times, you know, I would tell you, you know, in the past, you know, I knew most of the people down here because we're on the street every day and people were respectful. There is no respect out there. What are you hearing from business owners down here in terms of the situation? They're fed up. The businesses are fed up down here. 
you know, if they've had rocks thrown into their windows once, they've had them thrown in five, six, seven times. Everyone expected in the summer it would be bad, but it's been like a year and a half since the tents were removed from this area. And Mayor Wu said she was going to take a public health approach and increase housing to deal with this, but it doesn't seem to have gotten any better. What do you think? What What's going on here? Is a new strategy needed? A new strategy is needed. The problem is until you get to the root cause, it's going to keep coming back. We have more and more people every day. And what we have out here now is a very different type of, of individual. We have gang activity down here now. We have you know, drug dealers living in tents down here. We, we started off that we weren't going to allow any more tents. And then, of course, when it got to bad weather, it's like, well, we'll let tarps. Well, we'll let umbrellas. Well, we'll let... And the problem is one thing leads to another. And now um, there's a bunch of tents. And now there's a bunch of tents. And so, so we do need enforcement of no tent policy. We do need the enforcement of no open-air truck use. That is the root cause of the what you're seeing down here out in front of some of the tents on Atkinson Street, people have set up areas where they're selling food or cigarettes. It's your cold soda, pal. It's your Newport, pal. But some advocates continue to visit the area. Jim Stewart is with a group working for safe consumption sites for people to use drugs under medical supervision. He says more law enforcement is not the answer, but more services are needed. There's some commerce going on, people selling snacks and uh, other supplies over there, all, you know, everyday things people need. So there is something going on here besides drug use. These people are a community. I think you'll also remember that when we were here a couple of years ago, these people were spread out over a much wider area. Does that, that register with you? Right, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So this is a very, like, this is what, like two city blocks, really, yeah, right? Yeah, they're all crammed in here. Um, there are limit, there's limited access to the services that are available in here. Uh, I mean, I don't know how far you want to go down. No, but we can go down. Right, you want okay, to walk? Yeah, let's walk. We can walk down Atkinson. Now, this yeah. gentleman here is uh, injecting drugs into his neck right next to us. Yeah. And, um, and people are in various states. Can't miss state. a chance to say some people are doing that out here unsafe because there isn't a safe place for people who are struggling with substance use disorder to deal with the condition they have. A lot of people in wheelchairs, um, a lot of needle caps, a lot of trash. Yeah, and what definition of a commonwealth or of a uh, advanced society would people who have you know, clearly got physical disabilities, um, often compounded with mental health challenges, be expected to live in these situations? You know, there's this basic fundamental, you know, people are trying to live the best they can under circumstances that you know, nobody should have to live under, you know? Mayor Wu is expected to announce her new mass and cast strategy soon.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open, a new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR this afternoon. Our weather forecast is calling for showers and thunderstorms tonight. In fact, we have a thunderstorm warning posted for the next two hours or so. Temperature is going down into the 60s tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine. Highs in the 80s, and that's our forecast for Sunday as well. It's 74 degrees in Boston at 6 o'clock. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. And from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations, including foundations, with their accounting needs. More at YourPartTimeController.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. labor market was moderated in July. Job growth was slow, but unemployment remained near a record low. It's Friday, August 4th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, what the job growth numbers today indicate about the U.S. economy. Also this hour, we'll have some reaction to this week's federal indictment of former President Donald Trump, this time from some of his Republican rivals in the presidential race. And is extreme weather affecting Americans' summer plans? Plus, Argentina deals with some of the highest inflation in the world. It's 6.01. First, a look at this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal appeals court has struck down Mississippi's lifetime voting ban for people convicted of certain crimes. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports the ban was put in place during the Jim Crow era in an attempt to disenfranchise black voters. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals says Mississippi's felony disenfranchisement law amounts to unconstitutional, cruel, and unusual punishment. The ruling says the ban automatically denies the pressure 
precious right to vote to a large class of its citizens, with no thought given to whether it's proportionate, and calls the law out of step with a clear and consistent national trend against permanent disenfranchisement. Civil rights groups sued on behalf of former felons who had completed their prison sentences but could not vote because of the crimes they committed. The crimes, including bribery, theft, arson, and bigamy, were outlined in the state's 1890 Constitution, adopted to, quote, secure to the state of Mississippi white supremacy. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. A Russian court has sentenced the country's jailed opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, to an additional 19 years in prison. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, the trial unfolded in unusual circumstances and marks Navalny's fifth conviction to date. Judges moved about 150 miles east of Moscow to conduct a closed trial inside the very prison, where Navalny's already serving out a nine-year sentence for fraud and embezzlement. With its ruling, the court convicted Navalny on a slew of new extremism-related charges tied to past work with his anti-corruption foundation that targeted Kremlin graft. Navalny and his supporters have denounced the trial as absurd in a statement issued a Ahead of the ruling, the 47-year-old opposition figure said he also anticipated the long Soviet-style sentence, but called on supporters not to despair. The verdict, Navalny argued, was designed to intimidate millions of Russians from demanding a change in leadership in a country free of war and oppression. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. Hiring held steady last month as U.S. employers added 187,000 jobs. NPR Scott Horsley reports the unemployment rate dipped to 3.5 percent. U.S. employers added 187,000 jobs last month, a solid pace of hiring similar to what we saw in June. The unemployment rate, which is compiled from a different survey, fell to just 3.5 percent, close to a half-century low. Healthcare, hospitality, and construction were among the industries adding jobs last month. Factories cut about 2,000 jobs, while the information sector shed around 12,000. Workers' wages continue to climb, with the average wage in July up 4.4% from a year ago. That matches the annual increase in June, which was more than enough to offset inflation, giving workers a real boost in buying power. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks lost ground at week's end on Wall Street. The Dow was down 150 points. The Nasdaq closed down 50 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Internationally renowned Harvard Law School professor Charles Ogletree has died. The civil rights scholar mentored President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama when they were Harvard Law students. In a statement, Harvard Law's dean, John Manning, said Ogletree lived, quote, a life of great consequence and made extraordinary contributions to the law. In 2016, Ogletree revealed that he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Charles Ogletree was 70 years old. Seven members of the State Police Association of Massachusetts state troopers will get their jobs back. They were previously suspended and another trooper returned to duty after they all sought a religious exemption to the state's vaccine mandate for COVID-19. An independent arbitrator ruled in favor of all eight Massachusetts state troopers who refused to get the vaccine and asked for a religious exemption. The arbitrator found that the state police by 
violated the troopers' rights because it did not accommodate their beliefs. The state police must now offer all the troopers their jobs back with full pay retroactive to when they were suspended. Brigham and Women's Hospital says it may have exposed the personal information of almost 1,000 people who are taking part in a research study. The hospital says names, date of birth, social security numbers, and health insurance information were inadvertently made available online. The hospital says it is reaching out to those affected and taking steps to further protect personal information. The MSPCA is at its limit for the number of small animals that the agency can help. It's looking for people who are willing to adopt. More than 130 guinea pigs, rabbits, and other small animals are in its care, and the organization says people who adopted pets during the pandemic are now giving them up. Mike Kiley is head of adoptions at the MSPCA. We see and we know historically that people um, sometimes get guinea pigs and rabbits um, for children as a companion without recognizing how uh, long they live. The agency says it's supporting efforts to ban the sale of guinea pigs at pet stores in an effort to discourage their casual purchase. It might take longer than expected for some people to get their car or trucks to or from Martha's Vineyard today. One of the Steamship Authority's ferries between the Cape and the Vineyard has been taken out of service. The authority is adding an extra trip each way tonight to accommodate vehicles that may not have made it on earlier trips. In our forecast, showers, thunderstorms tonight, temperatures in the 60s, sunny tomorrow, highs in the 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In the case of former President Trump, two things can be true at once. He can be formally charged with crimes related to his attempt to overturn the 2020 election, as he was this week. And he can remain the clear frontrunner for the Republican nomination in the 2024 election. So far, Trump has been able to turn most of the press into very good press, at least among his supporters. This week, he boasted online in all caps, I need one more indictment to ensure my election. So what does this mean for the Republican candidates running against Trump? Well, Republican political strategist Sarah Longwell is here to tell us. She is the founder of Republican Accountability, a group that opposes Donald Trump. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so on the whole, can you just tell us how other Republican presidential candidates have been responding to this third indictment? What's striking you so far? Well, there's sort of tiers of candidates and how they respond. So Trump's biggest rivals, somebody like Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis actually rushes to Trump's defense. Uh, He uses very incendiary language. He talks about uh, the weaponized justice system, the idea that they uh, should be, you know, slitting throats at the deep state. Uh, And I think a lot of the the candidates uh, feel like they need to 
defend Trump because people like DeSantis are trying to win over his base. Now, there's another category of candidates like mm -hmm. uh, Mike Pence um, or Asa Hutchinson or Will Hurd or Chris Christie um, that tend to be much more critical of Donald Trump. Right. I mean, Mike Pence was sort of the most interesting of the responses because he said anybody who puts himself, he didn't name Trump, but he said anybody who puts himself above the Constitution is unfit to be president, which was a pretty st strong statement uh, from Pence. But the, the biggest thing uh, is how little most of Trump's serious challengers, uh, let's say somebody, really the only people within even spitting distance are Ron DeSantis and, and, and then more distantly, Tim Scott. And both of them have been very quick to defend him. And they often pivot to, to kind of a what about, you know, what about Hunter Biden? Uh, and they talk about a two-tier justice system. And I do focus groups with two-time Trump voters almost every week. And that voice is reflected back by the voters. When I ask them, you know, what they think about these indictments, uh, they, you know, they, they think it is about people trying to get Trump because well, he's the me, most dangerous candidate. Let me jump in because I would like to look at those tiers a little more closely. For those candidates who are noticeably defending Trump, or at least the ones who are repeating this argument that the system is rigged, how are these competitors threading the needle here, like defending Trump while also trying to beat him in the Republican primary? Well, the answer is they're doing it poorly. And I think this is <laughs> okay. why nobody has really been able to break through. You know, I think Ron DeSantis, uh, particularly by trying to take this very aggressive tone, by taking almost a Trump-like uh, tone uh, in in the way that he defends Trump, he he doesn't seem to realize uh, that he is not going to beat Trump by uh, defending him or trying to sort of out Trump Trump. Um, and it's been a problem for him his entire campaign is that he has never figured out a way to actually go on offense against Trump because mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis, for some reason, made the strategic decision to try to, to wrestle Trump for his base yeah. as opposed to consolidating the chunk of the party that really wants to move on from Trump. Well, let's talk about former Vice President Pence, which you mentioned, you know, he had that statement that you cited, you know, this serves, this indictment serves an, as an important reminder. Anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. Also, in this indictment this week, uh, the allegations were that Trump berated Pence in January 2021, saying, you're too honest, which I understand Pence is trying to sell some too honest merch now, right? How's that going? I don't know what his sales look like, but I will <laughs> tell you that I've been hearing from voters just for months and months in the focus groups. Uh, and, and there is no interest in a Mike Pence presidency. He's really in the sour spot with voters where the people who want to move on from Trump feel like he's too closely tied to Trump. And then all of the people who really like Trump think Mike Pence is a traitor. And they actually talk about Mike Pence in some of the mm -hmm. most uh, incendiary language. Um, and uh, and the best most people say about him is that he's boring. And I but, think that there's a reason that he's polling so low when he has 100% name ID as a former vice president. But in the last minute that we, ha we have left, what about Pence's message that he is on higher moral ground than Trump? Because he's not the only candidate saying that. Chris Christie, Will Hurd, Asa Hutchinson, they're saying similar messages. How is that panning out for those candidates? Look, I wish, as somebody who agrees with their message vehemently. Um, the fact is that every poll where voters are asked uh, 
do you want to see candidates criticize President Trump or do you want to see them defend President Trump? The voters always say what they want to see uh, from any presidential candidate is somebody who vociferously defends Donald Trump. Hmm. And what about independents or members of the party who are a little bit disillusioned? Are they more persuadable on this higher moral ground message? They really are. And this is where there is a big difference between uh, the indictments and how they impact primary voters on the Republican side, uh, where it makes Trump more popular. But for swing voters, especially the January 6th indictment and the issue of January 6th, that's one of those things that really does start pulling off those uh, swing voters. That is Republican strategist Sarah Longwell. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. When a huge suicide bombing killed dozens of people in Pakistan last weekend, a terrorist group that seemed to have been defeated said it was responsible for the attack, the Islamic State, also known as IS or ISIS. That got us wondering, how serious a threat is the Islamic State today? We're going to put that question to Mina Alami. She's a specialist in jihadist media with BBC Monitoring. Mina, welcome to the program. Hi. Mina, as recently as a few years ago, the Islamic State controlled a lot of territory in Iraq and Syria. It was considered defeated in 2019, but that doesn't mean it's disappeared. In what form does the Islamic State exist today? Absolutely. I mean, IS attacks and activity around the world have significantly dropped. It is definitely a shadow of its former self. But the group has never gone away. And even though it doesn't make headlines, we know that IS is still active in the Middle East, in Africa, in Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Um, the attacks that it carries out don't, again, always make headlines because they are limited. But it is always there. The militants, its fighters, are always there carrying out small attacks, trying to infiltrate certain communities. And, you know, the numbers are down and some of its leaders are dead, but the group is still a threat. You mentioned that there's a presence in various countries, countries in Africa, Afghanistan, Pakistan. How strong is the communication and coordination among the different Islamic State groups around the world? Well, IS claims to be a global caliphate, you know, despite losing its territories and everything. But it likes to project this idea that it has these global branches far flung in various parts of the world, um, in in Nigeria and DR Congo and Mozambique and the Sahel, as well as in Afghanistan and all these countries. It usually um, concentrates its activity on in, in rural areas where it knows that there's perhaps weaker government authority in some of these countries. Um, and it's not like, of course, IS just went there, took the banner and set up a new group in in, in Nigeria or in DRC. What it has been doing is simply co-opting existing Islamist insurgencies and then getting them to rebrand as IS or ISIS. And it's a win-win for both groups. On the one hand, these local insurgencies get to have that reputation of being part of IS or a global caliphate. And with For IS, even if this group is small, it gives them that ability to say, we have a global caliphate that extends from east to west, north to south. So it's been this partnership where both groups are benefiting. Just this week, IS announced a new leader after its former leader was killed by rival militants in Syria. What does that indicate to you, if anything? Indeed, I mean, this was the big story um, yesterday, and there had been rumors already that the IS leader was killed. The group clearly has been hiding it. We've had this kind of churning of IS leaders. And the other thing is, of course, you know, since its founding so-called Caliph Baghdadi, IS has not been revealing the true identity of these leaders. So it's it's now even a bit of a mockery within jihadist circles, really, because the group simply announces 
the alias of a leader. Some are even saying, well, do they even exist? Is it just a name? It is really a big blow to the morale of its followers, who it seems every few months have to come out and pledge allegiance to a new, utterly anonymous leader. Mm. It seems even their followers don't know who this person or who their leaders are. So it does impact the credibility of the group, at least in the eyes of their supporters. So there is obviously a continuing threat of Islamic State. How adequately do you think governments and countries worldwide are treating that threat? I think the the danger is sometimes, I mean, the assumption is that, okay, so IS has lost its bases in Iraq and Syria, lost its so-called caliphate. That threat is, if not completely, you know, over, then it has been diminished to, to a large extent. And I think that the danger in that is that these jihadist groups take advantage of what they see as, you know, the West's preoccupation with other matters. There are, you know, lots of concerns around the world. There's, you know, Russia, China, Iran, Ukraine. So while the West is looking away, jihadists are really rubbing their hands and looking at this as an opportunity. They, they see a distracted world as an opportunity. Exactly. And they look at, for example, the French withdrawal from Mali, and they see that as an opportunity as well. Of course, they, they take advantage of the, um, the Russian Wagner personnel being there and all the negative reports in the media. And they say to to Muslims there, see, we are here to protect you against these mercenaries. So, of course, they're really trying to build up their strength in the Sahel and other countries where the West is seen as, you know, withdrawing. That's Mina Alami. She's a specialist in jihadist media with BBC Monitoring. Thanks, Mina. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks so much for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this Friday evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, we're going to do a story about how the extreme weather is affecting some Americans' summer plans. On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow dropped 150 points to close at 35,065. The Nasdaq was down 50 points. In local business news, outdoor retailer L.L. Bean plans to open two new stores in Massachusetts. One will be located on the South Shore at Hanover Crossing. It's expected to open next month. The other is scheduled to open in October in the North Shore Mall in Peabody. It's 19 minutes past six. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Showers and thunderstorms in our forecast tonight. A severe thunderstorm watch is posted for most of the state. Temperatures only in the 60s tonight. Tomorrow it'll be mostly sunny, though. Highs in the 80s and Sunday. Sunshine with temperatures in the mid-80s. That's the forecast for Monday as well. It is 75 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Summer usually comes with the promise of fun, whether it's cookouts in our backyard or long-awaited vacations. But this summer has had a hard time delivering. This weekend, we're expecting a heat wave in the south again and thunderstorms in most of the country again. NPR's Lisa Lambert reports that despite all that, Americans are determined to hold summer to its promise. It's summertime. Isn't the living supposed to be easy? Yeah, it hasn't been that easy. That's Taylor Evans, who works in entertainment marketing in New York. Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) It's been very muggy, very warm. Yeah, just almost like swampy a little bit. And thunderstorms and those days when the city was blanketed with wildfire smoke. Well, even then, Evans has found ways to keep having fun. I went to a concert in Brooklyn. Both indoors and out. There was an um, anniversary party for the musical Wicked like two weeks ago. In a very New York way. The Met does like a rooftop sort of like makeshift bar in the summertime. No, Americans will not lock down again. We're constantly consulting weather apps and chugging the it drink of summer, water, or electrolytes if you're feeling fancy or really, really hot. And we're having fun. In the last week of July, which was hit by both excessive heat and thunderstorms, Major League Baseball recorded the best attendance at games in more than a decade. Live Nation, the big concert promoter, just posted record profits. And then there's travel. John Hunt has been zooming around the country with his wife and two kids. Our four-year-old for some reason, keeps a rock every time we go somewhere. And I think we have like nine or 10 rocks sitting on a table. Rocks from Missouri, California, Washington State, Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, the Rockies. And every time I look at it, I'm like, man, that was a a lot of packing a car, making sure you have everything, checking the weather, going and doing it. It's been tough at times. 60 mile per hour winds shook their tent in Wyoming. His wife had heat stroke at the gorge in Washington. One flight was delayed for six hours. But Hunt hasn't canceled any plans and doesn't intend to. My family is kind of on like a rock band tour from the end of May until the middle of August. One reason? He invested a lot into planning the summer. He started in November to make sure he could lock in campsite reservations. Also, most of the time, summer's been fun, like at Priest Lake in Idaho near the Canadian border. The weather's great. I think the hottest it got was maybe like 90 degrees. We had one day where there was a little sprinkle of a shower, but, you know, sitting on a beach at a lake in northern Idaho is is pretty lovely. And yes, there's a possibility of more extreme weather next summer, but he's still going to kick off another round of planning in three months. And I guess the the best thing I learned from my grandfather is if you don't bring a raincoat, it's going to rain. If you bring a raincoat, there's a chance that it won't rain. So you just kind of prepare for whatever the worst could be. And hopefully it doesn't hit you or it misses you by a couple miles or you're in it. And, then you know, that's a whole different experience. And hopefully you have your weather apps and your electrolytes with you, too. Lisa Lambert, NPR News. There is a force moving global economies right now. It's bringing millions to cities and local businesses. The force I am talking about is... It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. That's right. It's her, Taylor Swift. It's estimated her Eras Tour will generate $5 billion in global revenue. But for countries like Argentina that are really struggling with inflation... Taylor Swift has become a bit of an anti-hero, as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. Leonardo Abdel-Nur lives in Buenos Aires with his wife and kids. 
and his twin daughters love Taylor Swift. Are they like singing Taylor Swift songs around the house? Yes, yes, they turn on this Spotify list uh, almost every day. They've been kind of praying that she comes to Argentina at some point. Their prayers were answered. Taylor Swift is coming to Argentina in November. And the second that news broke, Abdel Noor's daughters were begging him for tickets. But there was an issue. The price. Argentina is dealing with some of the highest inflation on the planet right now. Prices are rising at a rate of more than 114% a year. That means a coffee that cost $4 last year will cost more than $8.50 this year. And next year, it will cost $18. And Taylor Swift tickets cost a lot more than coffee. 45,000 pesos each, excluding, you know, these fees that they charge. So in total, it's been like 50,000 pesos. That is about $180, which is a lot in Argentina. The average income for a household is about $4,500 a year. Using that same metric, that would mean one Taylor Swift ticket here in the U.S. would cost almost $3,000. Abdel Noor has a good job in IT, and his wife also works. They're lucky, but they're not super wealthy, and the tickets were going to have a big impact on the family budget. We had to have this talk with my girls, right, with my daughter, say, I really want to go to this because this is really expensive, right? Abdel Noor and his wife talked it through. But it was not the same conversation parents in the U.S. were having because hyperinflation changes economic incentives. It turns everything on its head. Like if you have extra money in Argentina, the smart thing to do is spend it as fast as you can. It buys less every day. So saving is kind of for suckers. The goal will be to spend all that we have because otherwise you are losing money because next month, you know, the value of that is much less. But then at the same time, you need to still say because you'll never know, right, what happens. So it's kind of a game here, right? What to do with your pesos. A game. What to do with your pesos. Spend them all and you get the most out of your money. But then you have no cushion in a really unstable economy. Save your pesos and your savings loses half its value every year. Right now in Argentina, expensive restaurants are booked solid. People bring backpacks full of cash to pay for a nice dinner while they still can. Shows, movies, concerts sell out. Abdel Noor and his wife talked it over. They did have this chunk of savings that they'd been planning to use for home improvements. We were saying, oh, we want to pay in the house. What if we purchase the tickets and we are postponing the painting. Of course, it was risky. In six months, the cost of painting the house could be much higher. They didn't know. What they did know, Taylor Swift was coming to town and they could bring a lot of joy into their daughter's lives, help them shake off this tough economic moment for one night. Finally, they came to a decision, got everyone together to discuss. We gathered together at dinner and then we say, okay, we can purchase the ticket. His daughter's were very excited. They were yelling, they were, they hugged me, they gave me a kiss. (laughs) Abdul Noor and his wife had a long conversation with their daughters about how they'd made this decision, the things they would hold off on doing in order to afford the tickets. So they also understand our other priorities for the family. We are doing this, we are not doing that, but we, we all were happy anyway, right? I mean, they are happy, we are happy as well. 
Abdelnour is trying to teach his kids how to make responsible financial decisions in the middle of a lot of instability and uncertainty. He grew up in Argentina, and hyperinflation has happened before. He knows it. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Looks like showers and thunderstorms tonight. That severe thunderstorm watch is still posted. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Sunshine tomorrow with highs in the 80s. Sunny on Sunday with temperatures in the mid-80s. And that's our forecast for Monday as well. It is 76 degrees right now in Boston. On Wall Street today, stocks were lower. Marketplace will have all the numbers and all the day's business news when it gets underway in just a couple of minutes. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. 